Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the FX Matt Brewing Company. That's right in the middle of Utica, New York. Population, by the way, 11,762. I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, and uh, lots to talk about about where we are. But let's start right now with the history of this place. Because we're right in the middle of? Um, right in the middle Oneida. of the, Mo- the Mohawk Valley and, and Oneida County. And, you know, we talk about the Mohawk Valley and Oneida County. I mean, those are two Indian names. Mm-hmm. We're they talking sure about yeah. the Indians who were here before anybody else. Yeah. And, and by the way, we're talking, <laughs> we're talking to Brian Howard from the Oneida Historical Society. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me here. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, the Native Americans had been in the, uh, in the region for, for literally hundreds, if not thousands of years before um, uh, what we would consider to be the colonial uh, age came about. And, uh, uh, you know, they have a deep, rich history, which is intimately tied to the land. And, and most of what we consider to be history these days is, is really from that, that colonial period forward. But we got to go back. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's important to remember that. And, and fortunately, we have the, uh, the Oneida Indian Nation, which is here, and they do a fantastic job of preserving and promoting their, uh, their heritage in the region as well. And let's just say where we are, because we're, you know, Utica is where? 
Uh, well, it's it's right in uh, the central region of upstate New York, and uh, this this city was uh, actually founded initially. It was uh, along uh, the Mohawk River Trail of, of forts, which were uh, built in uh, mostly in the 1750s to protect the uh, the trade routes which uh, colonists had established. And if you are trying to travel from the Atlantic seaboard into the uh, interior of what is now the United States, uh, there was really one place where the Appalachian Mountains uh, were not an impediment to that uh, along, the, along the seaboard. That one place is right here. And with the Mohawk River flowing through here, um, this really became a, uh, a real significant region of trade and commerce. Uh, people could, um, could, again, travel up the Hudson, get onto the Mohawk, uh, come all the way to what is now Oneida County. Uh, they would have to uh, get off of their, their boats and uh, travel maybe a mile or so across what was called the Oneida Carry, right near Rome, and uh, then back into the Wood Creek. And Rome was Oneida very close Lake. to here. Yeah, yeah, eight, eight miles away. Exactly. And, um, you know, you, you get back in Wood Creek, Oneida Lake, and you are, you are set going, going to the west. You know, if you really want to tell the story, you know, you have the Mohawk River, you have the Erie Canal, mm-hmm. uh, you also have the Lakeshore Limited, the train. Sure. I sure. mean, people don't remember that, that uh, you know, here we are, we're celebrating, you know, this week, you know, mm-hmm. the World Series. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how the teams would travel. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. and yeah. especially now between Cleveland and Chicago, that was the Lakeshore Limited. Oh, yeah. Right? Well, well so, so much of this area's history is, t- is intimately tied to its transportation, and, uh, and that goes right back to the Mohawk River and, and, and Wood Creek and, and that, uh, that carrying region. You know, you look at the, the railroads which uh, went through this area. Uh, the New York Central was the dominant uh, uh, rail line here in the, the 19th and, and early 20th centuries. Uh, follows the route, of course, of the, of the Mohawk River and, and of, that, of those early commerce trails. And, of course, I'm old enough to remember Mohawk Airlines. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, they were around until 1972. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not old enough to remember Mohawk, but I did fly on Shut Allegheny. Up. <laughs> I did fly on Allegheny, Allegheny which, which, which was took a them bet, over. Listen, between Mohawk and Allegheny, I mean, you suffered on those airlines, trust oh, yeah. me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. I was at an airline memorabilia collection, uh, convention recently, and someone was selling a Mohawk Airlines blanket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where has that blanket been? Oh, my God. You know, within the last year uh, at the Historical Society, we received the uh, collection of the ad agency, which represented Mohawk Airlines. Oh, how cool is and, that? Uh, yeah, and, if, if you're, and we have a Mohawk exhibit right now. And um, if, if I'm there, man, yeah, uh, if you're at all familiar with uh, Mad Men that was on, oh, on AMC, very, they represented well, that. Uh, yeah, th- those well, ad, well right. we, we have the real the real ad agencies material. So, well, you know, um, it's interesting. You go back to those days of the New York based airlines, you know, mm-hmm. or, or Pennsylvania, right? Allegheny, Mohawk, mm-hmm. Trans Caribbean Airlines. I mean, yep. all these airlines that were all New York based or, mm-hmm. or East Coast based with East Coast ad agencies mm-hmm. and what they were putting out on in magazines and on the radio. Oh, yeah. No clue whatsoever as to what you were really going to get. Oh, yeah. And it's it's incredible to uh, to look at, at Mohawk in particular. And I never realized I grew up two counties south of here. I never realized that Mohawk was in the middle. 1960s, the largest, uh, the nation's largest regional, regional carrier. Air carrier. Absolutely, I, I was like, I can't believe this. You know, right, yes. right here in in, in Oriskany, just uh, you know, just north of the city, and you know, just just uh, a great story. Well, you know what? You take that story here, you move to the Midwest and talk about an airline called North Central, mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah, and of course they got taken over and taken over and taken over. They became. Oh, yeah. 
you know, were Republic, and then they became Northwest, and then yeah. that became Delta. Uh, and oh, it's yeah. all funneled down. Well, that, that's, that's kind of uh, uh, analogous to so much of our history here, because when you look at our, our local story, so much of it is intimately tied to our nation's story. Everything from the American Revolution, the, the Erie Canal, you know, it didn't just open up New York State to Congress. It opened up the nation. And you've and, got great archives. I mean, you've got, yeah. what, 250,000 books? Um, yeah, well, we've got, well, we've got several thousand books, uh, about a quarter million documents, yeah. and uh, 30,000 pictures. And, um, and, and it all documents the, the, the fantastic, fantastic history of this, of this region. And the presidents who showed up. Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, another little known fact of, of, of people from, who aren't from this area, we had uh, the Democratic nominee for president in 1868 was Horatio Seymour uh, from Utica, who? New York. Who? Exactly, exactly. And um, uh, our vice president of the United States in uh, 19, uh, from 1909 to 1912, James Schoolcraft Sherman. He was William Howard Taft's vice president uh, from Utica as well, former mayor, congressman. And uh, the site of his home, which no longer stands, uh, is uh, is about two blocks uh, north of where our historical society is, and less than you know, less than a mile from here. What's the biggest surprise who, to, for people who will visit the society that they had absolutely no clue about the importance of this county? Um, the biggest surprise, uh, very subjective, um, probably. Oh, geez. Just how much our local history is tied to our national history. You know, I, I, I hate to speak in general, generalities, but there, there are so many examples of that. You know, the, the Erie Canal, uh, again, our, our, our factory-based uh, economy Well, the history here. of manufacturing yeah, on the a, East Coast. Yeah, and, and here we are at the Match Brewery. I mean, this, the, the brewing uh, industry in this region was huge. We were one of the nation's leading producers of hops in the late 19th century. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that, that died big, out. Big German influence. Oh, of course, yeah. of course. And, um, you know, at, at one time there were, uh, there were over a dozen breweries in this, in this area. And this brewery goes back to, what, 1888? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And, and uh, yeah, last, last one standing. And, and what a great legacy that, you know, we, we actually have the Match Brewery. So, you know, it's, it's a segue into talking about so much of what, what makes Oneida County and the greater Mohawk Valley significant. Plus you can drink. Toto, I'm feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. It's impossible to come to this part of New York or anywhere in Oneida County and not realize the importance, the historical significance of the waterways and, to me, uh, the canalways and how it grew the economy, how it grew America, how the communities grew up around them because it was so important and, uh, I mean, completely significant to their own uh, survival. Uh, and joining me now, the uh, deputy director of the Erie Canalway, uh, uh, Bill Schweitzer. Bill, what what always amazes me, and I've been up to the canal, and I've written, I've gone on the canal, is the engineering of it all. Um, you know, this is before they had engineers; they, they didn't have the technology, and yet they figured out a way um, to make it work. I mean, even the Panama Canal, you're fascinated with how they did it, not that it works now, which, by the way, it does, but how they did it. 
How did they figure out what to do? Right. Well, they didn't know. They didn't know what they were going to do. They started digging it before they figured out, you know, how to get up over the Niagara Falls uh, escarpment, how to do that in Cohoes Falls, just east of here. Um, it was before engineers. It was land surveys, and they dug two, you know, 363 miles with dirt scoops and stump pullers. And yet they had to figure out a way to, to, to basically move the commerce. I mean, that, that's what was going on. It, it, it was goods and supplies. That was the idea. You know, how do we get the, the, you know, the products from central New York to New York City, but faster? You know, we will dig a ditch, fill it with water, and bring it down. But they didn't know how to, they did it, and it was the engineering marvel of its time. Because you had to deal with all the locks, mm -hmm. right? You had water levels. Yep, locks. And, uh, you know, they could only pull about four trees out a day. It was the American frontier at that time. Uh, uh, they uh, invented the stump puller, the wheelbarrow during that time. The stump puller uh, went from four trees a day to 40. You know, and then they were really making time. Right, and killing a lot of trees, but that's another story. <laughs> but the canal still operates today to a certain extent. It, absolutely, and we are uh, on the eve of our 200th year. Uh, we've been in uh, uh, continuous operation for 192 years. I mean, part of anything has to deal with great storytelling, and you guys tell that story. Yes, yes. Uh, What's the most surprising thing for visitors? I mean, the surprising thing for me, as I already said, was just the engineering. It's the wow factor of, like, how did they know to do that, right? What's the story that you guys tell that's the most surprising to people who visit? I, I, I think it's when a, a boater calls up and says, hey, I want to see uh, uh, the Erie Canal. I've, always, I've heard the story. I want to see upstate New York. And uh, then they get on the water, and they see that the history just seeps into you. It, it, it you know, you can't help it. Uh, and you see old structures from 200 years ago uh, right next to you. But then the modern day st structures are all over 100 years old today. So I think that you, you, you can't help but be amazed at the engineering uh, structures that are around you. You know, we talk about rails to trails. And you know all about that, right? The old abandoned railroad lines that now are hiking and biking trails. You have a lot of those, too. Sure. So the old towpath where the mules used to pull the barges is now a multi-use trail. It's a 365-mile trail that mostly parallels the canal now. So uh, the Canal Corporation maintains and operates the, the canal, but also the, the trail as well. So you can bike the whole 365? Yes, yes. It's about 70% off-road, and we are closing the gaps uh, as we speak. So bring your mountain bikes. Uh, yeah, for some spots. Yeah, big tires. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it's uh, paved or stone dust, and then very well signed uh, where it's where it's still on road. So basically, you're telling me I'm not going to get lost. You will not get lost. Oh, you said that emphatically. Okay, <laughs> you will not get lost. But bring a GPS anyway. <laughs> bring a GPS. Sure. Yeah, you got it. Uh, how long is the actual operating canal right now? So it is uh, the modern-day canal. The, the system is 524 miles if you include. That in itself is incredible. It's incredible. Um, it, there are four historic canals, the Champlain, the Oswego, the Cayuga Seneca, which connects the two biggest finger lakes, Seneca Lake and Cayuga Lake, and then, of course, the iconic Erie Canal. So the whole system today is 524 miles, but it's 363 miles from Waterford to the Tonawandas. And if you're a pleasure boater, you can, you can go on it. You can. You can. you got to make reservations, though. No. No, you don't? No. Well, we open, uh, uh, you know, Mother Nature uh, willing, we open uh, May 1st, and we close about November 15th, depending on the weather. Right, but if, if you show up, you're, you'll get in the locks. You will. Um, you know, there's a, a small fee at, at, at the locks, so you can get a season pass, 10-day pass, or a two-day pass. Uh, but uh, we are open, uh, you know, daily. And let me put it in perspective, you won't be going very fast, but that's the beauty of it. 
you don't want to go fast. Yeah. You want to see upstate New York. You want to see cities like Utica and the hundreds of villages that are only here because of the, when the canal was dug nearly 200 years ago. I know. Now, it was dug nearly 200 years ago. What kind of maintenance do you have to do to keep it at the water levels that it has to be? So that is our, that's our main job. I love talking about the canal, but mostly what we do at the Canal Corporation is just keeping it open, maintenance and operation. Uh, a lot of dredging? Uh, a lot of dredging. Um, we, uh, we keep it about 12 feet. Uh, 12 feet for for the uh, commercial vessels and the big sailboats um, but it's uh, the the structures nowadays the modern day canal Teddy Roosevelt's canal is a hundred years old so it is constant care and maintenance if you are continuing on to another southwest destination please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information if you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. And joining me now, Beth and Marr, the executive director of the Adirondack Scenic Railroad. You still run. Yeah, thank you for having me here. We do still run. Former New York Central line. Oh, I remember the New York Central. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I used to see the New York Central because I grew up on in, in Manhattan. I'm still living in the yep. same location. And at 96th Street and Park, the tracks come out. And you see, and it was always New York Central going yeah. up. Right? Well, we have such a luxury uh, for a tourist railroad, for a heritage railroad, because Utica's Union Station is a beautiful building. Came into that last night. Yeah. I have to tell you something. I was wowed. And we have the, and the old wooden we benches. We to the main line. Yeah. You know, so we have everyone coming in from Amtrak. Um, a lot of passengers turn around and, you know, ride our railroad up into the Adirondacks. Was it tough to preserve that station? Did they want to tear That's, it down? Yes. 1977, actually, was when some of the historic preservation efforts started. Um, the 1980 Winter Olympics were held in Lake Placid, um, way up in the Adirondack Park. And, you know, part of the challenge was getting people there. Um, you know, you're talking just two-lane roadways. Um, and the railroad was actually revitalized. It was abandoned prior to um, that revitalized really quickly and sort of haphazardly for the 1980 Winter Olympics. Um, and that was when they started to do some of the restoration work and repairs on the station. And Amtrak still comes up there. Amtrak still comes. And yeah. do, you, do you use those tracks too? Well, we don't use Amtrak's tracks, but right. we use the, the tracks. Um, we run from Utica to Remsen, Old Forge, Saranac Lake, and Lake Placid, all through that Adirondack Park. All year round? No, no, we don't. We, well, we run from April through the end of the Polar Express season, so right up until Christmas. Have a little four-month break. You know, we restore sanity and, you know, do some major equipment repairs. It's challenging to run with that much snow. Exactly. How so, long a run is that? Um, the whole line itself is 141 miles, but we're actually a nonprofit, so there's a section in the middle that is not... There's a section in the middle just for fundraising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. So. Um, our longest runs are around 65 miles right now. And what kind of engines are you using? Uh, we use Elkos. We have some F units. They're all, for the most part, heritage engines built steam? in the 50s. Steam? No, no steam. these are diesels. Diesel. Okay. Running on vegetable oil, maybe? No, but we actually, we did have a meeting with NYSERDA. We're looking at a lot of cool uh, alternative energy um, uses. Because we did a piece on the Grand Canyon Railway and they're using yeah. old French fry oil and it works. Well, we're, we're one of the testing partners for, you know, positive train control that you read about in the news. So there's some advantages to being a small railroad. Every we, train we get to try the new technology. Every train should have positive train control. Yeah. The, the railroad has been getting a, 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 a free pass for a long time. I'm talking about the major ones, including the freight trains, 
we would have avoided a lot of accidents and a lot of fatalities had those trains had the PCT. The industry or hasn't the PTC, changed I much. Say. I know. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I found the Hall of Fame of Boxing. It's here. It's here. And uh, and the guy who runs it is, uh, is Ed Brophy, the executive director. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing. Well, it is, Peter, and uh, we're very proud to have in Central New York the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And uh, boxing is a, uh, one of the longest, oldest sports there is, and uh, great to preserve the history of it. Why here? Central New York is a boxing uh, community, a lot of uh, history over the years. In our particular town of Canastota, New York, which sits right between Syracuse and Utica, in the heart of the state, right off uh, the main route, uh, Route 90, New York State Thruway. Uh, Village of Canastota had 100 years of boxing history and uh, bare knuckle boxing, high school boxing teams in the 30s and 40s. But Carmen Basilio, the welterweight middleweight champion of the world of the 1950s, put Canastota on the boxing map. He was fighter of the year, athlete of the year, beat Sugar Ray Robinson, a lot of pride for the community. Boxing continued with amateurs and pros. Another world champion from Canastota, Billy Backus in 1970. The village uh, always loved boxing. Central New York always had a history of boxing. Why not have the International Boxing Hall of Fame right in the heart of the New York State, which has always been the capital of boxing? Now, let me ask the devil's advocate question. Because every boxing movie you ever see, and of course, we can talk about Rocky all day long, but we won't, okay? It's always about kids in communities like that who are boxing so they can get out of the community. Well, boxing has done so much for kids and yeah. youth and uh, you know they get all sports pride and uh, conditioning and uh, many people have to uh, uh, you know look for something and boxing gyms are nice to find because in that gym is the trainer that cares about you and uh, it really brings the, the all your efforts together to do things in the right way and you also build pride and you earn money and you get fame and you know a lot of things go with boxing like a lot of sports but no not any as much as the sport of boxing from a lower level of having pretty much nothing to really becoming a champion of the world and be a known worldwide and of course nothing did more for boxing when you think about it than Cassius Clay aka Muhammad sure. Ali yeah and uh, you know Muhammad Ali uh, recently passed and uh, it was actually during our Hall of Fame induction weekend that happens every year in, in June. June in June yeah and uh, what a celebration it was for the induction weekend to celebrate the new inductees but also it was really a, a time to celebrate the career of Muhammad Ali. So all the world champions from all over the world were in Canastota to celebrate the induction weekend. At the same time, they were all telling stories of the great Muhammad Ali, and all the fans were telling stories. It was such an uh, interesting gathering that it happened during that time. And the famous ring that Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier fought each other in, in Madison Square Garden, 1971, March 8th, the fight of the century, that ring is sitting at the Boxing Hall of Fame. And where's the thriller in Manila? That was it, it, back, back in Manila, probably. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That was uh, the Frazier Ali fights. You know, the, you got to see they were the best. Uh, they really put boxing. Uh, well, that was the height of showmanship. Yes, exactly. Between Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell. Right. 
Is Howard Cosell mentioned here? He has to be. He has to be, and he's in the Hall of Fame, one of the great broadcasters, uh, Howard Cosell. Uh, you know, when you think of Howard Cosell, you think of boxing, you think of his relationship with Muhammad Ali, of course, great in all other sports, but Howard Cosell, when you think of his name, you think of Muhammad Ali. You think of Muhammad Ali, you got to think of Howard Cosell. And the last time you were in the ring? Well, that was many years ago during my high school years. If you're born and raised in the village of Canastota. You're in the ring. You're in the ring. Uh, <laughs> you go to the gym, you watch a few fighters. The next thing you know, you're bringing a duffel bag to the gym and you're working out. Were you wearing a leather helmet? We had headgear at times. But what was the uh, headgear but, when you were fighting? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had headgear in, uh, in uh, my time in the gym and also in the ring as an amateur. Once you turn pro, there's no headgear. But I never did any pro rings. And which is why you're able to talk to me coherently today. Well, I surely, hopeful, hopefully I am. And uh, I'm enjoying the visit because I always love talking boxing. I spent a lot of time with Ferdy Pacheco. Right. You know who that is. Sure, one uh, of the greats. One the, of the, fight great doctor, the fight doctor. The fight doctor. I mean, he and I, were, he would take me to rings in Miami Beach yeah. in the neighborhoods. And that's really where you see it all, just like, like your town. Yeah, yeah, Fifth Street Gym, Miami. Uh, Angelo Dundee had the great gym there and... Freddie Pacheco uh, worked with him closely. That was, uh, you know, that was when boxing, uh, wide row sports, and, uh, you know, Freddie Pacheco, Angelo Dundee, Fifth Street Gym, Muhammad Ali, Jimmy Ellis, you know, all the big heavyweights. That was a magical time in Miami and Fifth Street Gym, very well known, and it's, uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, gyms uh, that was ever in boxing. Okay, you have to indulge me. You ready? Adrian! Okay, uh, I had to do it. I just had to do it. Yeah, Sylvester Stallone. Do you show movies there? Uh, we don't show movies. We show a lot of the highlights of the different fights. Uh, but uh, speaking of uh, Rocky, uh, Sylvester Stallone was elected in the Hall of Fame in the observer category. That's for broadcaster screenwriters. Yeah, no kidding. He, his, he, was not, a, he was never a professional fighter. Right. One of the great screenwriters of all time. So he was elected in uh, the Hall of Fame in 2011, and he was there for his induction. And what a contribution he has made to the sport of boxing. So well-deserved. Sure. And, and you know what? Here's the thing. Every time he does a movie, I got two words for you. Ready? Rocky wins. <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, he's the, he's the screenwriter, he's the producer, and uh, he actually you know, plays his part. So that's really interesting, and why not win? What have you done in terms of education? Well, we have a lot of different groups that come in and uh, study the sport of boxing. We have a large research area, and uh, not only for the young ones that come in and teach them about the history of the sport, but there's a lot of people that are studying boxing from all over the world or doing documentaries, and we have all the research material, and we help them out. And, uh, because you have archives. Archives that are, uh, go back to the 1700s. Uh, so we're often called upon uh, from the TV networks, the, uh, the boxing historians and fans of questions, and we're providing all those answers of the right historical answers for the sport of boxing. And it's uh, quite a job for the Hall of Fame, uh, but it's uh, done in a, a very professional way. What's the biggest surprise for people who are visiting the Hall of Fame that they're not expecting to see? Well, you know, I'll, of course, the famous ring of all time is the 82-year-old ring from Madison Square Garden. They walk around it. You know, if that, if that ring could talk. Well, we try to have it talk by the pictures around it, the videos playing of all the great fights, and people are just amazed that that is the battlefield, a battlefield of boxing. Uh, but also there's the robes and programs and championship belts uh, but the fist casting, people are amazed uh, of the fist cast. Every champion that comes, their fist is cast and it's on display. And we have over 200 that fists. That would be cool. Everybody compares their fist to the champions like Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali. Uh. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs?
You know, if you're in Utica, you're not far away from one of my favorite places. I find a way to get out there at least once a year to one of my favorite hotels, the Otisaga, right there on the lake. And of course, Cooperstown, known, of course, as the Baseball Hall of Fame. And we just finished the World Series. What better person to talk to about it than Craig Muter from the Baseball Hall of Fame? How are you, sir? Peter, thanks for having us on. Very good. And you know I get up there every year. We've done our show from up there a couple of times. We've done CBS from there. Um, what an amazing town, but also what an amazing place. The only thing I have to tell you about Cooperstown, though, it's, it's the best sign. I took a picture of this sign because it, it was a, it's such a perfect sign in the window of a store of Cooperstown because it reminded me of my childhood and one of my great frustrations. And you know what the sign said? We have all the baseball cards your mother threw away. <laughs> because that's exactly what my mother did. That is the beauty of Cooperstown. I think everybody who visits feels the same way. It's, it's walking back into either your childhood or kind of your sports fantasy and is watching your baseball cards come to life all the time. I mean, I remember looking in my closet one day and go, wait a minute, where'd they go? Like, you don't need those anymore. I had my Orlando Cepedas and my Mickey Mantles and my Roberto Clementes. It's like, oh, my God. But going to Cooperstown, it all comes back. It does. And, and it, there's something about baseball that connects people and America like no other sport. And it's right here in central New York. You know, we just finished the World Series and it was probably one of the highest rated World Series ever broadcast because you had two incredibly good teams uh, with two incredibly good records duking it out in the middle of America. And, and, and both wanting so much for that championship. You know, it, it, they waited, Eastern waited so long just to be in the World Series for the Cubs since 1945, just to be there. There are people that lived and died natural lives without ever seeing that. Here's the thing, and I know a little bit about this having done some pieces up in Cooperstown, but you've got people uh, throughout the year who are in different stadiums who are there collecting those momentums as, as they happen. Absolutely. The, the artifacts, you mean? You're, yeah. you're referring to the artifacts. Yeah. Absolutely. And we did that at the World Series as well. And that's part of what we do at the Hall of Fame is preserving those artifacts, making sure that things like, you know, bats and balls and gloves that tell the story of these, this history is preserved forever in Cooperstown. I mean, we're talking everything from samples of dirt from the mound to, right? I mean, to uh, you know, a bat with a little too much pine tar on it. Uh, we, 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 won't, we don't want to talk about that because Mr. Brett doesn't like us to talk about but that. But you have that bat. Yes, you have that bat. Yes, you do. Yes, we do. Yeah, yes, see, do. I remember that. <laughs> uh, but what's amazing is you're not just going there to see plaques on a wall. You're seeing real stuff. It, it's it's Exactly. And you look at it and you realize that these were real people doing real things. I get asked all the time what my favorite art, artifact is in the museum. And it's a 1932 cap from Jimmy Fox, who was a Hall of Famer, and a Philadelphia A's cap because it's blue. And the reason it's my favorite is when I was a kid reading these stories, I just imagined that the athletics were dressed in green, probably because the A's are now. Right. And to see that, you realize these were real people doing real things. It's not just history. It's a living piece of America. And it changes all the time. It does. We, we, we update the museum constantly, mostly in the winter when the crowds drop off a little bit. The curators will put new artifacts on exhibit and take the other facts off and rest them, is what they call them, put them in the climate control facilities. And then, of course, you've got the Hall of Fame game. You've got, you got the, the game that you actually play. Absolutely. The, the Hall of Fame Classic is on Memorial Day every weekend, and it features legends, basically, coming back for a legends game at Doubleday Field. Nothing better than watching baseball at Doubleday Field in May. Let me tell you something. Now, I have an admission to make. I mean, I, I play on, on, on a pretty heavy-duty baseball league, and, and I think I'm pretty good. 
forget it. I go to the batting cage, and you know, you, in the old days, you could go to a batting cage and pick, I want Sandy Koufax, or I want Hoyt Wilhelm. You push these buttons, and these balls are coming at like 85 miles an hour. You couldn't even see them. You can't even see these balls. And if you, God forbid, you actually hit one, you hurt yourself. So when you watch the World Series and you see these guys hit Chapman's 100-mile-an-hour fastball, the fact that they could hit him or not. <laughs> I, I can remember standing in, in, in youth league against a guy who probably threw 70 miles an hour, and it scared the bejesus out of me. I, 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 could not, I couldn't take it. These guys are facing 95-mile-an-hour fastballs. They hiss when they go by you, the, the, the ball, the seams hiss in the air. There's nothing like that feeling. Hitting a baseball is the toughest thing in sport, bar none. Ted Williams was right. Right. And, of course, if you go to Fenway, you can find the, the Ted Williams seat out there, right? It's still, it's still red, isn't it? 521 feet. And I believe David Ortiz said this year, well, did someone really hit it out there? If you ever saw Ted Williams swing, if you ever heard the crack of the bat off Ted Williams' bat, you would know that Ted Williams hit it there. Amazing. And you're open all year round. We are open every day except Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>